Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Connection Point. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at a verse in Psalm 1, and then our main time together this morning, after a little while, will be in Psalm 8. So take your Bible, either your Bible app or your actual Bible that you have with you, and turn with me to the book of Psalms. You know, this is a beautiful time of year with the changing of the seasons, isn't it? And my wife and I love to take walks around our neighborhood. We have a little park nearby that we walk through. And we're often this time of year admiring the beautiful change of the trees from the green to gold and yellow and red and orange and all that. It's beautiful. But I don't think I've ever said to my wife as we're walking along, Candy, would you look at the trunk on that tree? Isn't that spectacular? Look at those limbs. Wow, I'll bet that tree has some amazing roots. Never say that. What gets all the attention is all the stuff that changes. You know, the leaves look beautiful, but the trunk, the limbs, the roots of the tree, they hardly ever change. They change, but very slowly, but actually they provide the platform for all that beautiful stuff that we talk about. Now, let me point out the obvious. God is a genius. (laughs) And God has created things in such a way that he combines what changes, like those beautiful fall leaves, with things that hardly seem to change at all, the trunk and the roots. You can be like a tree. Psalm 1-3 says that anyone who delights in God's word, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Now I wanted to start there today because let's face it, this is a tender time here at Connection Point. Last week, we said a heartfelt thank you and God bless you to Steve and Kristen Reeves. It's the end of an era. The leaves on the tree are changing. And yet the trunk of the tree remains strong. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This church has deep and strong roots. But if you come to church today on this first weekend after Pastor Steve's retirement and you feel just a little bit strange, that's okay. You're going to be okay. It's okay to feel those growing pains. But what's happening is... God is maturing us like a tree so that we can bear more fruit. That's why this fall, the teaching team here on staff is going to be presenting a series of messages called Rooted. We know that we're all in for Jesus here at Connection Point. We're rooted in the core values of spiritual growth, serving, generosity, and community. And you're going to be hearing about these values in different ways throughout this fall season. This is a time when we all need to be staying rooted in our faith. And this morning, what I want to challenge you to do is think about having the faith of a child. Do you remember the time in Matthew 18 when Jesus' disciples asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You remember what Jesus did in response to that question? He called a child to come in front of them, and Jesus said... Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The words of Jesus. 
Now, Jesus had many different objects that he could have used to explain what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven, but out of all the different illustrations, he chose a child. Why? Well, if you've been around kids and you've raised kids, you know that kids can be a lot of trouble. They're expensive to raise, right? They take a lot of time. They're time-consuming. They're messy. You know, there's an old proverb that says cleanliness is next to godliness. But if you have young children at home, cleanliness is next to impossible. (laughs) Kids are a lot of trouble. Why would Jesus compare us to children? Is he insulting us in some way? No, no, no. I think Jesus saw lessons in children because, for one thing, children are incredibly valuable. If you wanted to think of something valuable in your life, what's more valuable than the kids you know? I know my wife Candy and I have raised three children, two who were born to us, one came to us by adoption. When you marry somebody named Candy, you have to have M&Ms for kids. So we had Matt, Michelle, and Melinda. (laughs) Now that they're all grown up, they hate that joke. We've added two sons-in-law, and you know what they say about fathers with our daughters? We bless our daughters to marry guys who aren't good enough for them so that we can have grandchildren that are better than everybody else's. (laughs) And so now Candy and I have three wonderful granddaughters, two teenagers and one six-month-old little girl, all girls, and those kids are the joy of my life. Now listen, I am not a perfect guy, but one thing I know in the depths of my heart, I love my kids. And Jesus could not pay me a more... A more wonderful compliment than saying that if you want to be in the kingdom, you want to be great in the kingdom, you know what it's like? It's like God the Father considers you one of his kids. What a great honor to be one of his children. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. The kids here at Connection Point are precious. These children are precious to us. God loves his family just as we love our children. Maybe Jesus also had in mind that kids are curious and teachable. They're always thinking. They're always analyzing, you know? I heard about a five-year-old boy who said, I don't like fish because fish are made out of sushi. (laughs) Kids, just the way they think. Now, here's a picture of Vera Day. I love this picture. Vera Day comes here with her family each week to church. She's 15 months old. This photo shows her the first time she was experiencing large group worship here at Connection Point with her peers. I love the expression on her face, in her eyes, and the way her hands are kind of reaching out. She is just saying with that expression, teach me about God. I want to know about the Lord. That kind of hunger and thirst to know the Lord ought to be in all of our hearts. I just love the way kids think. One Sunday after church, I talked to a 12-year-old girl named Allie. And Allie said, it was kind of an interesting conversation. She pointed out that a lot of students in school these days are not learning cursive writing anymore. You know that's true. They type on their computers or, or they use block lettering and printing, but they don't use cursive writing. And Allie had an interesting thing she said. She said, cursive is going to be the older generation's secret code, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I like the way you think. What do you mean? And she said, well, when the millennials try to take over the world, you old folks can still communicate with each other secretly by using cursive writing. <laughs> Love the way kids think and analyze. But you know what? Sometimes as we grow older, we grow kind of hard-headed and unteachable. 
We think, I know what I know, I do what I do, I like what I like. And when Jesus says, you got to be like a child to enter the kingdom, it's a challenge to me to remain hungry and curious and teachable no matter how old I get. I don't know about you, I still don't know enough about God. There's still so much more of him I want to learn about. I've been reading this book, the Bible, for all my life, but there's still so much I don't understand yet. I want to know more. We need to have a curious, teachable spirit like children. Maybe Jesus also had in mind that children are hopeful. You know, kids get excited about their birthdays. Maybe you're at a point in life where you don't get so excited about your birthday anymore. But kids look forward to their next birthday. They look forward to Christmas. They dream about what they want to become when they grow up. They're excited about the future. That's a childlike quality, to be looking forward to the future. That's what all of us need to be doing, no matter how old or young we are. But the main reason Jesus said that we should be like children is because children are humble and trusting. They're humble and trusting. Jesus said to take the lowly position of a child or to humble yourself like a child. Let me show you another picture. This is Olivia Healy. Olivia is three years old. Now, you may not realize this if you're an adult, but some of the kids who go to church here are a little bit afraid to go to the bathroom in this building. You know why? Because the toilets flush automatically. Now, if you're a little kid, that's scary. If you're three years old, that can be scary. And Olivia was scared to go to the bathroom by herself. But a couple weeks ago, after church, she told her mother, don't worry, Mom, I can be brave because Jesus is with me. <laughs> now, I heard that story. I thought, i got to tell that story because I love the way she's making a connection between her love for Jesus, her faith in Jesus, and some practical thing that scares her a bit in her daily life. We all need to do that, regardless of how old or young we are, to make a connection between the power of Jesus and those little fears and anxieties, those concerns that we run into. We need to have childlike faith in Christ. Do you remember the time that Jesus cast the money changers out of the temple and the merchants out of the temple? It was a big deal to go into the house of God, into Jerusalem, to the temple, and throw out these people who had turned God's house into nothing but a shopping mall and a corrupt one at that. When Jesus did that bold move as the Messiah, there were people there in the temple area who got it and liked what he did, and there were people who could only criticize what he did. You know who criticized him? The adults, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They were mad at Jesus for doing that. But the ones who got it were the children. And the children praised him and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. They shouted praises to the Lord Jesus when they saw him acting as the Messiah would do. When the religious leaders were upset with Jesus for this, for accepting these kids' praise, and they said, do you hear what these young children are saying? And in response, this is in Matthew 21, 16, Jesus said, yes, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have called forth praise? Jesus was quoting from the main text that we're going to use today, Psalm 8. Now, when Jesus says, have you never read? I want to make sure I've read it. <laughs> and that's the passage that we're looking at. Jesus saw childlike faith in Psalm chapter 8, written by the shepherd boy, David. And Jesus saw there the kind of faith that he wants all of us to have. Here's how that great psalm begins. Psalm 8 begins in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens, and through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. 
God is so majestic and yet he chooses through little kids or people of all ages with childlike trust in him to bring forth praise. I want to show you in Psalm 8 this morning three facts that we need to accept with childlike faith. These are three ways we need to remain rooted in faith at Connection Point in the days ahead. Are you with me? Here's number one. God created you for a reason. What could be more basic than that? But it is so important that we nail that down. God created you for a reason. Here's what David says in Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Now let's pause there and notice this. He says, God has put the moon and the stars and the heavens in place. You know, the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Such a foundational fact. But it is debated. It is disputed. It is mocked in today's world. The idea that God created the heavens and the earth. You know, I've never had to argue with a little kid about that. They just seem to know. Almost instinctively, intuitively, they just seem to understand there had to be a designer, creator, almighty God who put all these things in place. I heard about two atheists, two people who said they were atheists, who were tucking their son into bed at night. And as they kissed him goodnight, he looked up at them and he said, Mom and Dad, do you think God knows we don't believe in him? <laughs> the kid knew there was a God. Children just do. I think King David believed in God from the time he was a young shepherd boy. Out tending sheep. He was probably outdoors a lot, admiring the night sky at night when he was taking care of the sheep. And he had to be amazed by the moon and the stars. And remember, he did not have a telescope. So he could not see a fraction of what we know is out there. But David could see enough to know, as he says here in this psalm, that the heavens are the work of God's fingers. Now, you know what's interesting? It specifically uses the word fingers. You might expect in Psalm 8, when he says the sun and the moon and the stars and all that, it's the work of God's hand. That's what you would expect it to say. But literally, in the original Hebrew, it says fingers. It uses the word for fingers. That's important. God designed the universe with the precision of a craftsman. The way a musician finger picks a guitar or strokes the keys of a piano. The way an artist uses her fingertip control to paint with a brush and make a beautiful work of art. The fingers of God made the moon and the stars and those same fingers of God made you. In Psalm 139, David wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And folks, to say that God knits a baby together in the mother's womb is a perfect and scientific way to describe it because DNA filaments are actually woven together in a spiral shape. God's fingers have woven amazing complexity into every cell of your body. The DNA in just one tiny fertilized human egg contains more carefully coded information than a stack of books as high as my head. And yet the DNA filaments necessary to specify every unique human being alive today would only weigh about one-fifteenth the weight of a postage stamp. You are not an accident of nature. 
And this is very relevant to, here, to us here at Connection Point right now because, folks, the truth is Connection Point will always be a church that highly values people. From conception to death, from tiny babies to aging seniors, because this church is rooted in the biblical truth that every man, woman, boy, and girl is made in the image of God. We are rooted in that truth. God created you for a reason. There's much about that that I cannot fully explain, nor can someone who denies the reality of God fully explain all that's involved in human life. But I'll tell you, the older I get, the more sense it makes to me to accept that reality with childlike faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's stay rooted in that truth. Now, here's another fact that we accept with childlike faith that David mentions in Psalm 8. God cares about you with a passion. Now, picture David. He's looking out at that starry sky, and he's realizing God, the almighty God, created all this. He set the sun and the moon in place. And then he's overwhelmed by this thought. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and stars which you have set in place. Then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. He realizes how big, he catches a glimpse of how big the universe is, and he says, man, I'm just a speck. I'm just this tiny little dot in this huge world. Why should God care about me? Do you ever feel that way? I do. Do you ever feel insignificant? I'm a sports fan. I love college football and Listen, some of you IU and Purdue fans are going to have to forgive me, but I grew up in Ohio. I'm sorry, but I grew up rooting for the Ohio State Buckeyes. In fact, my oldest brother went to Ohio State in a day when you could actually live in the football stadium. I'm not making this up. He had a scholarship and he lived under the stands in those days under the football stadium. And so when I was a teenager, I went and visited my college brother, and I had to root for them, you know. He was standing, you'd walk out of his dorm room and you'd see the green grass of the field. And I remember going to, when I was a little kid. So all these years I have rooted for the Ohio State Buckeyes, especially in November when they play the team from up north, Michigan. They're such a big rivalry. And so when my wife and I were on vacation in Michigan, which I have to say is a beautiful state, we were driving through Ann Arbor and I said, Candy, you gotta, we got to stop and look at this. I got a chance to see the big house, you know, this big stadium up there with 100,000 people on game day. It was August. It was just a few weeks before the football season started. And I said, we got to see this. Now, my wife is not a sports fan, but fortunately for me, she is a good sport. And so she said, all right, we'll take some time on our vacation so you can look at the stadium. So we parked. We found the stadium. We parked our car on the street. Went all, I was all excited. Went up to the gate, and it was chained shut. A sign saying it was under construction. Well, I found a security guard, a great big, tall, strapping tall fellow. And I looked up at him and I said, sir, I've come from a long distance away to see this stadium. Is there any way that I could get in there for just a few minutes? And he looked down at me and he said, where are you from? <laughs> well, I couldn't lie. I said, Ohio. <laughs> and he looked at me like I just confessed a terrible sin. <laughs> he said, it's technically closed, but all right. I'll open it up for you for just a few minutes. So he unlocked the chain and opened the door, and I went in there. I was like a kid in a candy store. It was so much fun to go in this huge place. 
and look at this big stadium. I want to show you a picture of what it was like there when I, my wife took a picture of me in the stadium. And see me there? See how important I am? They see, oh, you have to look really close. There we go. To see. <laughs> and later I looked at this picture and I thought, wow, that was important. But to me and to me alone. I was in this huge place and I thought it was such a big deal. I was all excited. I was waving and everything. Look at me. And then I looked at the photo later and I thought, wow, that's such a massive place. I look like an ant. My presence there made no difference to anybody except for me. Maybe you felt that way before. You know, right now, there are 7.4 billion people on earth. Why should God care about me? There are 323 million people in America at last count. Why should God care about you or me? Why do one or two people matter at all? Let me put it a different way. If God, the creator of the universe, ever thought about you ever, that would be an amazing thing. If he ever thought about you, the one who created the galaxies, the stars, if he ever thought about you one time, that would be an amazing thing. If he thought about you every year on your birthday, wouldn't that be amazing? If the creator of the universe thought about you once in a while, or when you pray to him, wow, wouldn't that be an amazing thing? But this passage in Psalm 8 has one word in it that just lights me up every time I read it. You know what it is? It's this word, mindful. What is man? What is mankind that you are mindful of them? That's what David says. That, you know why I love that word? It suggests that God's mind is full of thoughts about you. That he's thinking about you all the time. That it's not just once in a while that you matter to him so much that his mind is filled with thoughts of you. What is man? Who am I? That you are mindful of me. That God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, would care about the details of my life? That's the wonder of God's grace. He cares about you with a passion. Jesus said in the New Testament that God the Father knows about the details of your life with such precision that he said even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now some of us are making it easier for God to count. <laughs> but what an amazing thing that God has you on his mind. He's mindful of you when you are in trouble. You ever feel like, I can't do this. I, this is too big for me. I'm in over my head. Good. That means you have to live by faith. You can't rely on your own human resources. You've got to look to God and his strength. It's good to be that way. The place where you bear fruit on a tree is when you're out on a limb. Faith gets exercised when you realize I've come to the end of my resources. I have to rely on God. God has you on his mind. Isn't that comforting when you're in deep and it's hard and you're in trouble? God is our refuge and strength, the Bible says. A very present help in times of trouble. You know what else is amazing about God? He's mindful of you even when you're not thinking about him. Even when the last thing in the world you want to think about is God. He's thinking about you right then. He's got you on his mind. Even when you're in rebellion against him and you're running away from him and you're like the prodigal son living in the far country, the father is thinking about you. And he's thinking of you with love and grace and a desire to be restored to fellowship with you. Do we look at all the people we encounter that way and realize how much God cares about every single individual? 
One time, it was Christmas time, I was getting ready to preach, and I loved to preach at Christmas. It was going to be a sermon on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Great Christmas text. And it was Christmas Sunday, and I was sitting down front, and I was enjoying the service, except it was hard not to be distracted because the guy sitting behind me in the row right behind me was talking through the whole service. I mean, talking out loud, he had kind of a raspy voice. So we sang Silent Night, but it wasn't silent because he was talking. <laughs> and they passed the communion trays, and he was talking even then, this kind of a loud voice. And it was hard to stay focused. And I have to admit, there was a part of me that was thinking, what's wrong with that guy? Doesn't he know how to act in church? And I kind of pulled my mind back into focus, and I got up and I preached about John 3.16, the love of God for all people. And at the end of the sermon... We sang a song and we extended an invitation to anybody who was there that day who wanted to come forward to accept faith, to express their faith in Christ and be baptized into him. And as we sang that song that day, the guy who had been sitting behind me making that noise, making the racket, he kind of awkwardly stepped out into the aisle and he walked forward. I took his hand, shook his hand, asked him a few questions, got to know him over the next several weeks, learned his name was Jim. Eventually, I was able to baptize Jim into Christ. But you know what I learned about Jim? He really didn't know how to act in church because he'd never been to church before, at least not one like this. And do you know why he was talking during the service? Because he really didn't know what was going on, and he wanted to know. His adult daughter had brought him to church for Christmas Sunday as her guest And he had a lot of questions about the songs, about the scriptures. When they passed the communion, he wasn't sure whether he was supposed to take the bread and the cup. And folks, do you know what I realized? I was the one who didn't know how to act in church. I was the one. My heart should have overflowed with compassion for a guy like that instead of in any way judging him. And I want to say to you, if you are a guy like Jim and you're coming to this church for the first time, and you're not sure you have a lot of questions about God or about the Bible, let me tell you, we are so glad you are here. And this church, Connection Point, will always be a church that is for people like Jim, for people who have a lot of rough edges, for people who are messy, whose lives haven't gone the way they want, for people who have serious and somber questions about God and the Bible and faith. We're always going to be a church like that, who cares about that. Because you better believe God has people like Jim on his mind all the time. He had you and me, all of us, with all of our sin, on his mind on a dark day outside of Jerusalem when the Son of God, who'd never committed a sin himself, stretched out his hands and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to pay the price for all the wrong things that you and I have done. God cares. This church cares. We are rooted in faith in a God who is passionate about lost people, people looking for answers. Who are we that God should be mindful of us? I can't explain that. But the older I get, the more sense it makes to me to just embrace it with childlike faith. Now there's one more lesson to see here in Psalm 8. The Lord created you for a reason. He cares about you with a passion And third, God calls you to a mission. Psalm 8 continues and says about God and his people. He said, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. 
You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea. Folks, we aren't just here on earth to pass the time. God has a purpose for us, a work for us to do, a mission for us to fulfill. God has made us the ruler over the works of his hands. He wants us to take care of his things. Now, did you ever have somebody trust something really valuable into your care? I remember one time an older man from Arizona and his wife contacted me. I didn't know these folks, but they heard that, that where we lived and they were flying out of our city. So he said, could I drive over? We're, my wife and I are spending the whole summer doing mission work as volunteers in Europe and we need a place to just park our car for the summer. And I said, sure, we've got a driveway, you can do that. So he drove over. We talked with them, got to know them, took them to the airport, and then he flipped me the keys to his car and he said, just feel free to drive it while I'm gone all summer. I failed to mention that his car was a brand new Lincoln Continental. My car that I was driving at that time was a 1978 Ford Fiesta. <laughs> About the same, you know. I decided that I would drive his car a little bit, but you know what? I was very careful how I drove his car. Wouldn't let the kids eat french fries in the backseat of his car. I was careful where I parked. I was careful how I drove because I knew I was accountable. This was not my possession. This belonged to somebody else and he was gonna come back one of these days and I was accountable to make sure that I had taken good care of what he trusted to me. Now Jesus did that with us. He gave his church, he gave his people, he gave every individual in his church gifts and responsibilities and opportunities to serve him. And when he comes back someday, we're accountable for what we've done with all that. You say, but how does this apply to me, Dave? It's talking about flocks and herds and the birds of the air and all that. Flocks and herds, I don't have any sheep grazing in my lawn. How does that apply to me? Well, guess what? The Bible says that God's people are the sheep of his pasture. I saw an interesting road sign this summer. Got out of the car and took a picture of it. I'd never seen a sign quite like this. You know what it is? Sheep crossing. Just a picture of a sheep. And you drive down a few more feet around this curve and sure enough, there are sheep grazing on either side of the road, a sheep crossing. I took a picture of this sign because I thought every church in America ought to have a sign like that outside the building. I probably ought to have a sign like that near my house. People in the neighborhood would think that's a little weird, but a sheep crossing sign because God's sheep are his people. You think you don't have sheep? Listen, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you better believe you've got sheep. Those little granddaughters of mine, those are God's lambs. If you teach or coach children or teens, some of God's flock is under your care. The kids in the Connection Point Academy are God's sheep. The hundreds of teens in this church's student ministry, what a blessing to have all these teenagers around. They are God's sheep. If you lead a small group, Anytime you interact with people at work or in school who look to you as an example and a leader, God's flock is under your care. Connection Point is and always will be a church on a mission. Little kids get this. Nate Reeves told me the other day about some kids here in Brownsburg who are doing yard work so they can give all the money away to help hurricane relief. Ella Abbott is another child who goes to this church. She's in fifth grade. She serves in production here at Connection Point running computer graphics, the screens, lights, audio. She loves it because she says, I get to help at church and it's fun. She gets that we're on a mission, that God has called her to a mission. Here's another young person who goes to our church. His name is Will Lawrence. Will is seven years old. I heard this story, I love this story. He and his family attend here at Connection Point and recently Will went to the barbershop to get his hair cut. 
And when he sat down in the chair, his barber half-jokingly said that he was having a rough day and to pray for him. And Will, seven years old, Will immediately stopped, bowed his head, and prayed for his barber. The kids get it. They get it. That God has called us to a mission. And the fuel that propels us in this mission is childlike faith. Now before we finish, one last look at Psalm 8, verses 1 and 9. You know, this is an interesting psalm because the first verse is exactly the same as the last verse. It starts and ends exactly the same way. O Lord, our Lord. Now what does that tell us? It's a united mission. Lord, our Lord. He's not just my Lord, he's ours. We're in this together. The staff have been wearing t-shirts around here all summer long. Unify, they say on the t-shirt, unify to multiply. I love that phrase. Unify, let's be together, let's work together, stay together. Unified as one body so that we can multiply the number of disciples that are made for Jesus. It's a united mission. It's a Christ-centered mission. Notice that verse says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's not my name, it's not the church name, it's not anybody's individual name. It's the name of the Lord that is majestic. It's the name of Jesus that causes our knees to bow and our tongues to voice our praise for him. It is a Christ-centered mission. He is the foundation. He is the head of the church. And notice this. It's a global mission. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name where? Just in Brownsburg? No. Not just in Indiana? No. Not just in the United States. In all the earth, all over the world. We're part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves that Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a tiny little mustard seed. And he said, you take that little mustard seed and you plant it in the ground, and guess what? It grows into a tree. A tree that's so big that the birds of the air can build nests in its branches. We're part of something very, very big if we remain rooted in faith. God created you for a reason. He cares about you with a passion, and he has called you to a mission. Will you keep your roots strong in faith in the Lord? You know, when I was a little boy, I remember going on trips with my parents and my brothers in the car. And um, I have two older brothers, and we would all squeeze into the back seat of my dad's big green Galaxy 500. My mom and dad would be riding in the front. My dad would be driving. I didn't have to worry about getting home safely because dad was a good driver, and he was at the wheel. And so I would just relax and go to sleep. There was something kind of sweet about just hearing my mom and dad in the darkness the car engine running, just hearing them chat, just hearing them talk. So I would drift off to sleep. And then after a while, I could tell we were almost home because dad would kind of lift his foot off the accelerator. The car would start to slow down. I'd hear the crunch of the gravel under the tires as we pulled into our old farmhouse driveway. By then, if I were awake, I still pretended that I was asleep. Dad called it playing possum because I loved what would happen next. He'd stop the car, turn off the ignition switch, and there'd be a little quiet moment. I'd hear him say, looks like the boys are asleep, mother. And then he'd reach back, open up the back seat door, and reach in with his big, strong farmer's hands and get me under my armpits and lift me up and put me on his shoulders and carry me up to bed. I loved that. He'd just kind of tuck me in, pat me on the head, and say, it's okay, son. You're home now. You're home now. I thought of that 
a few years ago when my dad died. And I thought, I'll bet God has just scooped him up in his hands and said, Paul, it's okay, you're home now. You know, for all of us, it's kind of a parable of the Christian life. We trust our father with the journey. He's got his hands on the steering wheel. He's the one in charge. We trust him with the journey and we can trust him with the journey's end. And when the day comes that we take our last breath, he'll just lift us up with his strong hands and say, it's okay, child, you're home now. Until then, you know what your job is and mine? Trust in the Lord with childlike faith. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we see your creative hand in the fall leaves. But even more, Lord, we see your glory in the cross. We see, Lord, how you poured out your love for us at the expense of the emotional, spiritual, and physical pain of the perfect, flawless Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the one we believe is, the Messiah. Lord, thank you for your grace. And now, as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper, help us, Lord, to remember the body of Christ as we take the bread. And help us to reflect upon and praise you for the blood of Christ as we take the cup. Lord, make us childlike. Forgive our arrogance, our pride. Soften our hearts. Turn our eyes, our hearts, our minds toward you. And in this tender season at Connection Point, Lord, make our roots grow even deeper. Help us to bear even more fruit for you. Right now, Lord, as we remember, as we gather together symbolically around the Lord's table, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and strengthen us and increase our faith. Through Christ we pray. Amen.